been very lucky to, to work with the, with the legend that is Gordon Murray himself. Your only consideration really is performance. Your common goal has now shrunk to making this one car as fast as you can. Just need to quote, I've never seen the, never seen CFD of, of the W13. Like no one can know just by looking at it, but I'm guessing the, the side pod had nothing to do with their porpoising issues that year. But even I can say as, as a Verstappen fan, it's always good to have competition. And I think 2021 proved that. I don't think many people, even yourself potentially, would have minded Verstappen winning that championship. But as long as it was fair and it was a good fight and it was a really good fight, it's just a shame how it ended. <laughs>
I envy people that have that sort of epiphany where they have a real passion or a sense of exactly what they want to do. And I say, I say that as someone that still doesn't know uh, what they want to be when they grow up. But you, um, I read here that you went to Swansea University and you said you did motorsport engineering. So what did that entail? What, what's different about that versus perhaps a more traditional engineering degree? Yeah, so there's there's not many there's not many differences to be honest. The the only real difference is every everything that's theoretical that you learn in class is all directed towards cars in some way. So we we all learn about mechanical engineering principles, but it's all applied to um, to race cars, which makes it more fun and more engaging. I I could never go to school and learn pure mechanical engineering. It's just too dull. It's not applied. Where going down the motorsport route allows you to learn those fundamental principles, but apply to something that interests you. And you can, it's then finding a job that you, that you love. It's not really a job at the end of the day. And that's what studying motorsport at university felt like. It didn't feel like a chore having to go to class. It was more, I get to go to class and learn about this thing that's really fascinating to me. And that I'll then hopefully apply later on in, in my career. I mean, that's amazing. And you can hear the passion in your voice reflecting on that, that period. Um, and you talked about the importance of um, like tangibility or applying what you're learning to reality. Uh, you know, I I'm probably at the other end of the spectrum in that I studied uh, maths, uh, which, you know, I enjoyed. But, you know, the seeing as le seeing lectures as an opportunity uh, probably wasn't quite where I was. So um, <laughs> when I was at uni, the people that did engineering or mechanical engineering, etc., uh, they participated in something called Formula Student. Did that still exist when you mm -hmm. were at uni or did you do something like that? It did exist. Uh, yeah, it did exist. Uh, not at my university, however. Um, I, I made a choice uh, to go to a university that didn't, that didn't participate in Formula Student to, to real, really nail down on, on my academics in class. And looking back on that, it's, it's a regret of mine, to, to be completely honest. Um, many people that I work with now and many people that I know in the industry have have learned so much valuable experience and have an incredible CV behind them because of formerly a student. Whereas I didn't, I didn't really have that luxury. Um, but that was that was my own choice. You know, it's, I kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit there. Um, and I was also quite unlucky with going to university during uh, the dreaded COVID times. Um, so a lot of what would then be time spent in the workshop or time spent um at your computer in a laboratory doing cfd or fea etc probably wouldn't have happened anyway um so i think it was a a mixture of myself shooting myself in the foot and and also covid pandemic anyway so well you, you sound like a self-deprecating uh, chap but uh, on the tangent uh, or, or the subject of going to university during covid i definitely reflect on my years in uni as like a huge formative experience and also just frankly having a lot of fun with my mates but um i don't know like if i became a lawyer one of the things i would do is start a class action for anyone that paid full tuition fees and, and accommodation <laughs> uh, when they went to university during the <laughs> pandemic certainly in the uk because it felt like uh, you missed out a bit not to you know not to make you feel upset but certainly it cost a lot of money here so um yeah uh, i hope, hope it wasn't too traumatic an experience and and as you say you did you got your academic side out of it at least Oh, it, it wasn't traumatic at all. I mean, p people have gone through substantially worse than me uh, th throughout going through through COVID. So I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. It's just a bit unfortunate. And um, I, I think you're right. People that have paid full tuition during that time, uh, it's it's not right. You don't get the full university experience. Um, so it's, it is a shame that we all had to pay full tuition, but there's not much we can do about it. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't. I, I feel like I'm uh, raising things that make people linger on the negative. But listen, um, for those listening that don't that didn't go to university in the UK, Formula Student is essentially a competition uh, where ultimately people that do uh, engineering degrees get together, they design and build a car, and then whoever is presumably the lightest member of the course gets to race it around uh, a course, and they do sort of, a, 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 as I recall, awards for sort of. Um, traversing the course or acceleration or top speed and all those sorts of uh, fantastic things. But listen, um, you talked about the experience that you could have gotten from that, but of course you're now a professional um, automotive aerodynamicist. So how did you segue from that experience at university into that professional world? How did you get that opportunity? How was that? Yeah, lo lots, of, lots of hard work. Um, I was, yeah, endless amounts of interviews. Um, it's not any any weird um, story that came out of nowhere. I didn't 
I didn't go months without without trying and then get this one one magical phone call. Um, I just applied anywhere and everywhere that I could. Um, and eventually got an interview at Golden Mirror Design, went there, did the interview and got the job. It was as simple as that really. Um, but it was, it's a lot of graft for anyone coming out of university. It's, it's real hard work. You, you, you get an awful lot of no's and not many yeses. Um, and that, that is also for motorsport as well. Not, not just, not just automotive. It's a, it's an extremely hard field to get into. Certainly the impression that I've gotten, we've, we've on the show had people that are sort of engineers or mechanics or, you know, basically in the paddock uh, working in motorsport and beyond. Um, and yeah, it does seem like not, not only the barrier or the bar to entry being like essentially well qualified, but then, yeah, the, the number of opportunities versus the number of passionate people that want them, uh, the ratios make it difficult. So um, you, you're, you're at Gordon Murray and uh, you described yourself as an automotive aerodynamicist. So what does that what does that mean in practice? And you mentioned you're working on road cars. So so yeah, what are you what are you thinking about day to day? Yeah, so day to day, um, you you would submit, you would get some kind of CAD from from a studio. You would then run that in CFD, see what it does, see see what kind of aerodynamic fluid you're getting around the car, whether it's positive or negative you would then feed that back to to the people who are creating the car usually the design studio feeding back your input saying you need to tweak this part here you need to raise this part 10 mil or lower this part by 20 mil or can you pull that out a little bit and see what it does and then we we would hopefully get that get that new cad chuck that back into the cfd and see what it does and hopefully it's it, it's a good result and that tends to be what happens day to day but there's there's a lot of management there's a lot of meetings going on with the rest of engineering because if you go just yourself and say i want to make this massive change to the roof it may be great for aerodynamics but it may not be feasible for anyone else so there's there's a lot of integration that that happens throughout a team and aerodynamics is just one very small part of creating a car from the ground up yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, you you know, the other people that are in the design team, I guess, are thinking about weight or complexity of design or cost or, or I guess, safety uh, and so on. Um, so, you, you, obviously, I think I know some of the acronyms CAD, CFD. What are, for, for listeners that are coming to engineering for the first time, so CAD is what? Computer-aided design or computer-aided drawing? What What is that? And what's CFD? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. CAD is computer-aided aided design, and that tends to be the software that is the computer equivalent of the old drawing boards you used to see. You see Adrian Newey um, quite often at his drawing board in his office on, on the Red Bull PR videos, and it's, it's the equivalent of that, but, in, but on a computer, um, and it's in 3D, not 2D as well. And CFD stands for Computational Fluid Dynamics, and it's essentially a virtual wind tunnel. You can see, you take that CAD, you take that surface, and you put it into, into CFD and see what it does. That's a really good description, a sort of virtual wind tunnel. And so I guess you're kind of, I don't know, you're constantly iterating designs until you get to a point where you're all sufficiently content that it does all the things that you need it to do uh, and has, you know, minimised all the problems that you need to minimise. Does that sound a fair assessment? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it, it, it varies project to project. Your, your, your goals could be a, a certain drag coefficient number. For mm. if you're meeting, if you're designing a car that's, you know, after a long range target, it tends to be more electrical vehicles that are going after that now. Or you could go for a um, a, a downforce target. Um, when I was working for a um, on a certain car, we had a pretty high downforce target. Um, and we didn't really care that much about drag, so that changes the way that you think about how you want to give your feedback back to the the design studio. Whether you want to add some vortex generators, whether you want to bring the rear in a little bit to, to reduce drag it's your your main goal is to to optimize around the targets you're given hmm. I get, I, that makes a lot of sense and yeah you talk about drag and downforce and i'm now thinking you know not to out myself too much as a lewis hamilton fan as i probably already have but um you know designing formula one cars where you know to get the downforce perhaps they're not efficient so they have a heck of a lot of drag and, and often well sometimes you you basically you're painstakingly trying to find downforce without uh increasing the drag too much uh, although it sounds like what you said 
sometimes it doesn't matter. So you know, why, why wouldn't it matter uh, in, in that case that you mentioned? Well, <laughs> I mean, arguably road car aerodynamics can be more regulated than something like Formula One, as you've got, like you said earlier, safety to consider. And the big one is styling. You know, you could bring an idea that that looks great on paper and it brings 30 counts of drag, but if it looks ugly, it will never end up on the car. So it's always a compromise between yourself, whether what targets you've got for, for downforce and drag or some other aerodynamic target and what everyone else wants for the vehicle as well, whether that be styling, safety, uh, dynamics, ride handling, etc. Sounds like my kind of engineering, like, uh, you know, oh, that, you know, I, that may add, dra uh, add downforce, but that just looks kind of ugly. So please go back to the, to the drawing yes. board. You know, <laughs> that must be a bit frustrating uh, if you're, you know, a well-trained engineer, like f desperately finding, looking for downforce. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I'm looking yeah, at the... Yeah, it can be. No, go on. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the website uh, for Gordon Murray Automotive. And uh, you, because, look, I, I'm a bit of an amateur when it comes to cars that aren't, you know, Ford, Peugeot, Renault, etc. And I can see that mm. a couple of, like, prominent models, uh, the T50 is a car that entered production uh, in 2023. And, um, and I look at it, and it does look like your kind of um, sports car you know, a normal yes. or, or, yep. or special uh, sports car. Um, is there a sort of unique, um, I don't know, concept or a unique brand um, that Gordon Murray Automotive is trying to live up to? Yes and no. Um, the, the T50 is, is very publicly based off of the McLaren F1, given that was also Gordon's design. Uh, so the, the T50 is kind of seen as a McLaren F1 predecessor. Um, it's got a lot of the same... Styling features has got a lot of the same targets. It's still a V12, um, and it's it's got this incredible power output from this awesome Cosworth uh, V12. That's got an incredible range figure. I think it was upwards of eleven thousand RPM, and it, it's fantastic. It, it sounds amazing. Um, but then you you've got other other vehicles like the T33, which is um, more of a homage back to the back to the sixties cars with a bit more. Of a comfort styling approach. I'm looking at the T33, and I, I suppose, like, who was it? Was it Taylor Swift? I'm trying to remember. You know, like uh, these these um, music artists that lose the right to their publishing rights, and so they often re-record their first album, and then they sell that version. Maybe, uh, maybe that's kind of where Gordon Murray's at. You know, given that he was huge, you know, the guy behind the McLaren F1. I don't know. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a little bit of that. Um, just just wanting wanting to do the McLaren F1 again, but but better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds amazing. Tell, before we sort of move on from this, how do how do engineers work together? Because clearly, look, if, if, if the company's called Gordon Murray Automotive, he he's a kind of experienced guy in the engineering and motorsport and car like automotive world. He he has vision for what he wants. But how do how do you communicate that down a chain or into a group of different engineers? Sort of how how do they set, you know how does the concept of a T thirty three for example arrive? You said comfort styling. You said a throwback to the sixties. You know, like what what are the kind of instructions that your team or that you get that enable you to you know to 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 kick off a design? Yeah. So luckily, I'm I'm at the bottom of that very change. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm only a graduate in this in this large cog. So I, I only get to see the, I only get told very broad instructions of make this part better or make this part more efficient. Whereas the people above me would get more directions over that they may even get a get a rough sketch from, from someone very higher up saying, we want the car to look like this. You need to make it work and meet all of these other targets. So it's often quite drip fed from the top as, as you would imagine. Um, but the, the whole team aspect is, is quite hard to manage. Um, the, the good thing about it is that we've all got a common goal. We all want the, we all want the car to be successful and, and for it to be, a, to be the best that, we, best that it can. And that's very much a, a motorsport style of, of management is we're all working, all working towards a common goal, even though all of us have very different roles to play. A common theme uh, through all the people we, we interview, because often you think about sort of 
expertise or even racing or whatever as kind of an individual sport. But it's clearly all of this is that driven down to how well you can and how effectively you can work together as a, as a team. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you, well, rather self-deprecatingly as well, you said you're at the bottom of the chain in a, in a small cog, but what is, what is the sort of career progression or the career path that you have your eyes on? Or are you quite open-minded as to where you want to go next? Yeah, I've, I've not got any immediate targets, to, to be honest. I'm, I'm very happy where I am and I'm, I'm, I'm using this opportunity to um, to develop my own skills as, as an engineer, but also the, the soft skills that are extremely necessary in, in engineering. Um, ones that you don't get much exposure to in university. So that, that tends to be the ones that you develop most, especially in your, at the start of your career. Um, I, at the end, I would love to work in motorsport in, in some sense, whether that be Formula One, whether that be working for, for a world endurance team, whether that be working in IMSA designing the cars. I have no particular preference over what series, but motorsport is definitely the aim. There's, there's just something about your only consideration really is performance. And that is your common goal is has now shrunk to making this one car as fast as you can. And there's just something enthralling about the thought of having your designs on a car that you can see go out track and hopefully do well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, clearly you talked about how you you saw that Malaysian Grand Prix in 2016. Even what you just said about, you know, hearing the engine, uh, I think it was of the T50 uh, that you mentioned, like, there's clearly something there that's sort of passionate about the roar of the car going, you know, and, and, and performance and, and going around the track. So, I mean, the easy, for me, the easiest sort of entry level understanding or, or being able to, the visibility of aerodynamics, I suppose, in motorsport is in Formula One because there are so many aero parts. Mm -hmm. um, have you been following testing? Uh, how, how much do you keep up with Formula One uh, these days? Uh, unfortunately, a lot less than what I used to. Um... I, I must admit the the Max Verstappen dominance has gotten to me a little bit. My my general interest is is down, as I think a lot of people's are. Um, but that's natural. You know, I, I think it's I think it happened during during the Hamilton era, um, and depending on how dominant the the years to come are from from Verstappen, to be honest, I don't see it slowing down much after seeing the RB twenty and seeing what it's been doing in preseason. Um, I can only see the the general interest of Formula One going going down. Unfortunately, um, I have been following testing very loosely. Um, some very different concepts, which is exciting. Um, even a few years into this rule set, so it's it's been great to see what different teams have come up with. And the good thing about Formula One is, like you were saying, aerodynamics is king. And often they will sacrifice uh, suspension performance to to get ultimate uh, ride control for instance. Um, so Formula One is a great way to, to look at something because it will be the best that you can do within those regulations for, for a certain team, obviously. Um, there's obviously developments and everything could be better, but it's better to look at a Formula One car to see things relating to high-performance aerodynamics in it than there is to a road car. There's less compromises. Um, the only compromise you've got in Formula One is the regulations. Uh, if you choose to follow them, I guess, or if they're enforced, you know, not to sound too salty. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, speaking of, sort of Formula One and, and yeah, I think any dominant period, but any, any sport where the sense of jeopardy and unpredictability is, is diminished, obviously loses some of its luster. But do you have a driver or a team that you've historically tended to favour or follow? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess luckily now I, I, I've always been a fan of Verstappen. Um mainly because when I first started watching Formula One, it was in 2016, Verstappen was the new guy on the block in Red Bull. And I just remember that 2016 Brazilian Grand Prix when it was pouring it down. And that one move on Nico Rosberg from the outside of turn three, that will forever stick in my mind as the moment I'm like, yeah, Verstappen is 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 the guy. And that, that's who I've chosen to follow throughout these years. And, and now it's paying off. But even I can say as, as a Verstappen fan, it's always good to have competition. And I think 2021 proved that. I don't think many people, even yourself potentially, would have minded Verstappen winning that championship. But as long as it was fair and it was a good fight and it was a really good fight, it's just a shame how it ended. 
Interesting. Fun fact, I was actually at that Brazilian Grand Prix in 2016. I've just moved to Brazil oh, for really? a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. It was more miserable and wet than it looked on the TV. But I happened to be on the back straight. So I did see, try to crane my neck, uh, the exit to turn four and then essentially just before. So exit to turn three and, oh, and the entry to turn four. So yeah, it was an incredible day, albeit I think they'd stopped the race. So it did, it did feel like it lasted for a long time. But yeah, absolutely. It was a moment, a defining moment, as you say, in Max's sort of development and, and announcing himself again on the on the sort of world stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and, and it's really intriguing. I don't think we have uh, not not through choice, but you know we don't often have uh, Max Verstappen fans on on the show. Um, and you mentioned twenty twenty one. I think you're right. You know, for me, it felt like with four or five races to go, the you know all was lost. And then Lewis put together a run of essentially 3.9 race wins. And then that sort of 0.1 or whatever it is at the end, yeah. whatever happened, you know, it got taken away. I, I believe it got taken away from him, but, you know, people believe what they want to sure. believe. Yeah. Um, but it was it was an enthralling season. And, and to me, it kind of felt like without, you know, being too hypothetical. I've, my first season watching Formula 1 is 1994, which I'm sure predates your birth, but it was... Uh, Schumacher and it was sadly when Senna passed away but it felt like the sort of season they mm -hmm. might have had if that had um, you know if he'd lived and and uh, you know those two teams that were extremely competitive um, so so um, why do you why do you feel and I, I have a reason why I feel this way but why do you feel relatively certain that the trajectory of Red Bull being dominant is going to continue for this rule set into sort of 2026 is it is there something you've seen or is it just sort of how you feel it's it's always difficult with 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 these things because you can look at a car and it look really good and really interesting and it turns out to be terribly slow and i think the the concept that proved that was in w13 and the and the quote uh zero pod um i think most people in who saw that come out of testing thought that looks really quick and it's really different therefore it must be good and it turned out to be a terrible idea um but an, unless you're a formula one aerodynamicist who's been trained in the field for many many years you can't just look at a formula one car and instantly understand what's going on it's they are the most complex machines aerodynamically on that you can in, in any sporting sense and they are you, you can't just have one person understand the entire car so i don't think you can look at something like the rb20 and think oh that's an advantage locked in for years but seeing how the RB18 performed and then the RB19, and now we've got this RB20 that is a completely, that looks completely different to last year's car. They, it does put a, a certain fear in your mind that they were so good last year and now they've changed concept to this new car. They must have found something. And that, that is the concern that they, um, that their dominance may continue until 26 or potentially further. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly my assumption is that until the new engine regulations and even beyond um, Red Bull look like a slam dunk to continue to win championships, I guess the only things that can bring them down are their second driver if, if things get tighter or, um, yeah. you know, uh, personnel issues, you know, and we see that there are some tensions between Jos Verstappen and Christian Horner and then, of course, the investigation into Christian Horner, which is, uh, I think concluding or concluded on the day of recording um my question to you i suppose is linked to what you just said about things looking fast to the eye well the w13 if i'm not mistaken looked fast uh in the wind tunnel or in the simulations uh, and it was only when they got to the track that they realized they had all the porpoising and the bouncing and so on and so forth so you know I, I, obviously you formula one is in your future not in your present but how do they? How do? How is it possible that um, you can get that sort of calibration between uh, simulation and reality so wrong? What What are the sorts of things you think had happened uh, for that to you know occur? Oh, it's 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 a fine art between simulation and and track testing. It really is, um, and even the jump from CFD to Wintall is is massive. You, you could find a uh, you could find a, a massive gain in CFD, put it in the wind tunnel, and it to be a loss. It can happen. CFD is just a very rough estimate of what's going to happen. It's it's 
It's nowhere near as reliable as a wind tunnel, and the wind tunnel is nowhere near as reliable as the track. So every single team is only going into, into testing or round one with an estimate of what their car is going to do. No, no one gets to the track and knows, okay, our car's going to perform 100% like this. Some teams may be closer. Red Bull may be 98% certain, and you may get a Williams that is 92% certain. You may even get Mercedes, who were 97% certain that their concept was going to work with the zero pod. And then get to the track, and then that 3% slips in, and that be the percentage error that then gives them all of these issues. But again, I don't think, again, just need to quote, I've never seen the never seen CFD of, of the W13. Like no one can know just by looking at it, but I'm guessing the, the side pod had nothing to do with their porpoising issues that year. It's the, the ground interaction of, of those cars is very complex and it's very difficult to model in CFD. And that error that creeps in naturally from CFD on top of these new ground effect cars that came in, that's, that's what really happened there. I think for us lay fans, it took us about 18 months to distinguish between a lack of side pods and the porpoising issue. Uh, and and uh, I, I suppose, you know, one variable is the accuracy of these different techniques, CFD, wind tunnel, track testing, and then the other, yeah, and the other variable is cost. Uh, and we know that, well, not least in Formula One, there are uh, explicit limit limitations on the amount of time you can do for each one, but clearly uh, track testing will cost you more than wind tunnel and so on, you know, uh, CFD will be cheaper uh, than that. Um, I, I guess um, reversing that back to your day job and thinking about road cars and, and sports cars, is there a great deal of um, ground effect uh, at play with those cars or is there an attempt to avoid that for a variety of reasons? Uh, for, for some sports cars, yes, there is certainly um, a ground effect element. And all ground effect is, is just utilizing ride height and designing your underfloor to be suited within a certain window for, for your ride height. That's all ground effect is. And I think there's been a bit of a misconception where the old Formula One cars of, of, of 21 and before weren't ground effect cars. They were still ground effect. They, the front wing is in ground effect. That's how, that's how you design these, um, these components. Um, the only difference from 21 to 22 is that the floor being the main downforce generating component is now also in ground effect. And I, that does translate a little bit to road cars. Um, for instance, some of the, for, for T50 and T50S we have, um, the underfloor isn't flat, therefore it would be a ground effect car. But we didn't have the, 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 the deployable side skirts that then made that ground effect even more enhanced. So there, there is a certain crossover between motorsport and, and automotive. It's just, it, it can be very small and it tends to be very small for, for the larger SUVs, but it does tend to be a bit more crossover for, for sports and hypercars. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend not to be able to go through an episode without mentioning the fact we had Mario Andretti on the, sh uh, the show. And on his most recent appearance with us, he talked about innovating that ground effect uh, with, with Lotus. And you talked about the skirts. Uh, yeah, like that car had, uh, at least in one iteration, the sort of brushes uh, along the bottom of the skirt to, to almost rub yeah, yeah. Uh, the floor to get to maximize that sort of, or minimize even that, that distance. Yeah. And, so, uh, I, and, and to talk about ground effect super quickly, me, when I got into Formula One, ground effect was absolutely, or the floor uh, and skirts were a no-no because of uh, you know, the, the death of Gilles Villeneuve in the 80s given, I yeah. suppose, the change in pressure coming up behind the back marker and going over a crest led to his car sort of flipping in the air. Such was the power of, or the, the, the sudden change in, in, in ground effect um, that, that caused him to have his accident. So yeah, you can see how powerful these effects are, absolutely. So, so here's a question. You're an uh, aerodynamicist. Clearly you've got a technical background, but presumably you've got an eye, uh, eye for this. Is there, are there some cars that perhaps you would say are, you know, the most aerodynamically, aesthetically pleasing that you've come across in your life or in your career? What, what would you say if you could have one or two cars in your garage, uh, which ones would you pick? It's a really difficult question. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess basing off, off pure, just thinking aerodynamically, 
Uh, I'm a real big fan of the of the Peugeot 9x8, um, the, the wingless wonder. Um, I, th I think it's a brilliant concept. It's unfortunate it didn't really work out too well. Um, but I, the the WEC rules for having a limit on your on your lift coefficient is is fantastic. And then it's up to you to get there. And P Peugeot had this fantastic idea of of pretty much um, doing what Formula One is doing at the moment and putting their all of their eggs in the floor basket and and getting rid of the rear ring to to try and get a get a drag benefit, which I think was fantastic. It's it's a shame it, it didn't work out too well, but um, I'll I'll always I'll always love that car. And uh, another one I guess has to be the BT46 fan car um, from the Swedish Grand Prix. Again, um, work of Gordon Murray. Um, Again, it's just a, another fantastic innovation getting around the walls by um, by having, I think it was 51% of the of the flow was used for cooling and therefore wasn't um, and therefore was deemed legal. Um, it, it's small things about about motorsport like that that, that I absolutely love. Yeah, I, I suppose it's uh, one of those things where if the rules say X and you achieve that, even if it was like, well, I wrote that rule, I didn't mean you could do that um, if the rules. Yes. They don't prohibit it. Let's say uh, that's that's the ingenuity, as you say, the innovation in in, in motorsport. And I had I didn't realize it was um, Gordon Murray that did that. Um, I, w what would you say are his most famous cars? Is it is it mainly that McLaren that won Senna and Prost all of those races, or uh, I suppose the fan car as well? Yeah, I I think pure design wise and pure innovation wise, it's got to be it's got to be the fan car. Um, mm. That's pretty much what he's built his entire automotive brand from. Uh, T50 has a fan, T50S is a fan. Uh, very different, very different functionality, um, but they're still there. Um, even the the T50S, I think, is nicknamed Nicky Louder. Um, oh. as Nicky won the race with the fan car, um, so it's a bit of an homage to him. Um, so it's it it's proved quite influential on on his route into getting into automotive. Yeah, and and so just for my benefit and perhaps those listening as well. The fan was obviously, as you say, there's a cooling element, but was it sucking the air from un from under the car to to kind of like, I suppose, suck it to the track or like what what was the fan trying to do? Yeah, it, it was purely a, it's a vacuum effect, really. It was mm. it was just evacuating the air underneath underneath the ground, and just massively increasing that low pressure under the under the under the floor that gives you that downforce. Amazing, yeah. I mean. Uh... I don't know. Sometimes you wonder. I mean, Formula One is extremely safe these days. Touch wood, uh, and long way that continue. But the regulations are so stringent that I suppose um, there's not always massive room for surprise innovations. The zero pod was one. Uh, the dual axis uh, steering from the Mercedes a couple of years mm -hmm. prior was was another. Uh, I'm trying to think. Were there other like what are the major innovations that we've seen in the last few years? I'm I, you know beyond those, I can't think of anything. Anything that comes to mind I uh, for you? Yeah, I, I don't think aerodynamically there's been many mm. since probably 2014. Um, obviously, DAS was a big one in 2020. Um, that wasn't an aerodynamic effect, but it was, it was a really interesting concept. And I think it was a shame it was banned, to be honest. I, I would have loved to see the, the teams in 21 or maybe going further um, experimenting with that and trying to optimize that and, and make it better than Mercedes. You know, that's that's half of the joy of the of the development race in Formula One is someone comes up with an incredible idea and then it's everyone else's job to catch up and, and innovate, try and make their idea better than the original. Um, but apart from that, you've you've obviously got the F duct in the in the early 2010s, you've got the mm. S ducts. Um, but yeah, I think the I think the main the largest visible change from the rest of the field is probably that W thirteen. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's it, it's not as though that did a fantastic uh, job. I'm trying to think. It, uh, it won a race, didn't it? It won the Brazilian. It did win a race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Albeit uh, Max had damage, and it was a sprint weekend, etc., yeah, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it, it, it won a race, and. And from what I understand at the time, it kind of gave Mercedes too much confidence in the overall concept and, and, and to stay the course, which then wasted the following season. So uh, <laughs> I may have oversimplified things, but perhaps uh, perhaps winning that race was a curse in disguise. Who knows? No, it definitely sounds a bit like that. Um, it, sound, it sounds like that, that Brazil race did put some some false confidence in in Mercedes' eyes of, of that concept. Um, 
but it's, it's strange. Um, I don't think the the only flaw with that Mercedes was was the side pods. Of the, you know, the given that the flaw of these cars are so dominant in how they mm. produce downforce, it's it has to be something with that flaw. And it, there was a lot of talk over they couldn't run the run the car low enough to get into its peak map because of the design of the floor, or whether there was something wrong with the suspension. Um, mm. But I think people over fixated on the fact, oh, this car is slow. This car has no side pods, therefore the no side pods is an issue. I mean, obviously the whole grid has now kind of converged away from that no side pod idea from Mercedes and more into like a, like a larger downwashing side pod. Um, but yeah. still, you you have to try these things. You know, if if you're not constantly innovating, then you're you're falling behind. Yeah, and and in a way, like I wonder if there was an indirect link. So, for example, um, clearly, no side pod means you have a certain you know cooling deficiency that you need to make up for in a different way. Maybe um, you know, clearly, they Lewis talked about the driver position being too far forward. Maybe there's a link. Uh, to that you know there's there's a range of other things like uh, I can't remember if it's, this is quite right but um, the way that Red Bull were able to put the gearbox in a certain you know uh, a certain depth uh, or proximity to the ground lowering the center of gravity etc like there's a whole range of knock-on effects going right back to what you said at the beginning that you you might find some you know reductions in drag or increase in downforce uh, on your side uh, but then other people from other departments then have a problem they need to solve yeah, exactly. And um, for for the guys who are working in Aero and F one, they they they're quite lucky in that sense because at, <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, Aero is king in Formula One. I feel bad mm. for the guys who are working in suspension. Um, <laughs> bet all of their all of their hard work coming up this with this fantastic concept for for managing roll pitch, however, has been destroyed by an aerodynamicist coming across and said, "I want the wishbone to look like this." Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's. Aerodynamics is king in Formula One, and and it's exactly what you said. Um, that packaging the gearboxes has massive effects on how you can package the underfloor, how aggressive your diffuser can be, etc. So there's always knock-on effects, and there's always compromises between departments. And in automotive, styling tends to get the final say, but in Formula One, the era guys tend to get the final say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming coming towards the end of the episode here, but like. Here's a really basic question because I'm, you know, again, not not massively technical when it comes to cars other than just watching Formula One for a, a while. Um, when I was growing up, right, cars were basically brick shaped. Yeah, that sounds like an exaggeration, mm. but maybe there was a kind of a, uh, you know, a concave angle between the bonnet and then the, the kind of uh, windscreen. And then it kind of flattened off for the roof and then it went down at the same sort of diagonal and then it was flat at the back. Um, what has allowed, you know, is it market forces that people want a car that looks sleek and uh, is, it, is it that it's cheaper to produce bodywork um, that is more uh, voluptuous, for want of a better word, or more exciting? Why, why have cars from, let's say, 1990 to 2020 changed in their design so much uh, from an aesthetic perspective? What would you say that's down to? Yeah, it's really interesting seeing that natural progression from late 90s to, to now I, I think the the major one is still probably yet to come with with the rise of EVs I think you'll see mm. a massive shift in how cars look when when EVs are hopefully not mandated um in in the UK anyway in 2035 or I'm not sure if that's just a, a diesel ban I'm not too sure mm. um but you'll you'll definitely see a massive shift in in how cars look when when EV becomes the norm uh in terms of 90s to now you know it's, it's probably a lot I've not really worked in manufacturing very much, but I assume it's now a lot easier to make curvy panels um, that, than it mm. probably was back in the 90s. Uh, but I think the major one is just the emphasis on how important getting range is now. And aerodynamics is the main factor in range. Yes, you've got mass, but it's not as important. Yes, you've got your drivetrain and your drivetrain losses, but again, that's not that important. So it comes down to how drag efficient your car is and then that's a massive driver on how on how your car looks at the end of the day then you've also got your consideration of how far cfd has come you know in in the early 90s um i'm not actually sure when formula one started using cfd um mm. but i it would be before the automotive world started using cfd yeah. um yeah. not long before but it would be before um 
and the advancements on, on CFD now has has been absolutely huge. Even though it is just an estimation tool, you know, you can chuck a design into CFD, see what it does, and you have some knowledge over what that design has done. Whereas back in the 90s, all you've really, or maybe even before then, all you've really got is wind tunnel. You, and that's a lot more expensive. And you can't just do multiple wind tunnel tests every day like you can do with CFD. Mm. So it's, it's just, I think it's a mixture of the aim of the car has now dramatically changed. You want, you need that drag figure, especially for EVs. And also just the, the, just the sheer advancements in technology, in manufacturing and also in, in simulation. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, see, I see the point you're making about range, but then I raise you the Tesla Cybertruck, which to me, mm. obviously it looks like a, you know, something from a dystopian sort of film, which is cool, but that, that, that doesn't look particularly uh, aerodynamically efficient. I don't know, but maybe you'll tell me that it is. I don't know. Well, again, I've never seen it in CFD, but um, from, from looking at it, I, I would tend to agree with you. It looks like a bit of a brick. Um, but again, these these things can surprise you. you. You can put this, you can put it in CFD, and it and it really surprises you. Or you put it in the wind tunnel, and it's even better than you thought in CFD. These things very easily do happen. Um, I know I know Tesla quoted a CD of it. I think it was around the 0.34 region. Um, don't quote me on that. That's just going off the top of my head. Um, which for a car that size is reasonable. Um, it's nothing will beating and it's nothing terrible. Um, and they've managed to get away with away with it in that kind of in that styling um, methodology. So there, there, there must be some things that they're doing with the underfloor that you can't see. That is, that's got some quite good trickery in order to get that CD done. Okay, so I'm looking at that. You said 0.34. I googled 0.34 drag coefficient, and uh, and then the first link that came up was uh, Tesla's Cybertruck claimed drag coefficient of 0.34 put to the test. So so 0.34 yes. when you say that number is is essentially uh, you know a measure for the drag that occurs as the car you know is at a certain speed traveling through the air, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a measurement of how drag efficient a certain shape is um one thing that is that is very interesting that i i have learned through through industry is don't always uh listen to what people are quoting on the internet a lot of the time it's their very very best case scenario in a wind tunnel with every every panel gap closed um <laughs> your your radiator flow being non-existent massive assumptions that make that make the drag better than what it actually is so that 0.34 that tesla's quoting may be the, the proper figure but it's it's doubtful just just hearing from just knowing what i've heard from just being around people who have worked in in automotive aerodynamics for a very long time it's interesting i feel like i've stumbled across a new kind of world you know like uh, on twitter particularly if you're on twitter when you're watching a grand prix there's a heck of a lot of vitriol and back and forth but i've now essentially stumbled across a variety of websites who are all arguing the toss about this 0.34 so you know Maybe that would yeah, be <laughs> good bedtime reading for me as I, you know, try yeah. to enter the world of aerodynamics. Um, so uh, we're get, getting towards the end of the episode. I guess here's a question for you. You talked about sort of being a relatively recent graduate and, and the challenges of, um, you know, or, or the persistence you need to enter the profession and so on. Do you have any advice uh, to your younger self or to students uh, thinking about following in your footsteps? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of it is is luck. You you can be extremely well qualified, and just on the day you you didn't get the job, and that that is the reality for for a lot of people. It was the reality for me. Um, I don't have a don't have a great CV. Um, however, there are people that I know who are extremely qualified, extremely smart, and they just don't get the luck of the draw um, for whatever reason. So I think the main thing is is persistence. Um, accepting that you will get a lot of no's, definitely more no's than yes. Um, and I think just having people around you who are in a very similar boat, just having people you can talk to and just kind of express how terrible it can be, because you'll you're, 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 you're never be alone, that all of your classmates in university will be trying to get jobs and will constantly be getting rejected until they get that one golden opportunity that has come about from as much luck as it is uh, talent so it's, it's just having a really good 
network of people around you. They can be students, they can be people who are already in industry, just people around you who understand how hard it is because it, it really is difficult. Um, and I don't think it's spoken about enough um, how mentally draining it can be, especially for, for new graduates. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, the main thing is just having people around you to talk to. No, absolutely. And and I don't know why, but when you sort of talked about having people around you, I was imagining or re recalling the story of uh, Mr. Beast, uh, the famous American YouTuber. And it, it felt um, hearing how he made it to, I don't know if it's a million subscribers, or whatever. He started um, basically with a, a group of people that were as passionate about as him uh, about making it on YouTube. And essentially that kind of net of people that, you know, oh, I tried this. It didn't quite work. Uh, you know, oh, I've had a really tough day. It's not nothing's working. Oh well, you know, I'm 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 here with you. It's that it sounds quite similar that you know, not not to call you Mr. Beast, but essentially, um, you know, that peer group of people that have a similar goal and who are going through similar experiences, and that you can kind of swap notes with and get support from. Sounds sounds like a fantastic piece of advice. Brilliant. Well, um, look, we we have a final question to close the show because it's the question we ask everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. So to set it up, I'm going to just like just check. No one's ever said no to this, but um, I take it that you don't mind pizza or you like pizza, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> OK, right. Yeah, it's a simple question. I, I might drop that pre-question, but I just want to make sure, you know, there, there might be someone <laughs> one day that says, I hate pizza. What are you talking about? But look, so you like pizza. OK, so this is a yes or no question, right? Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Uh, it's the age-old question, really, isn't it? Um, uh, I'm going to give that a big no, a, a big no from my point of view. Um, I think it's absolutely revolting. I, I can't stand it personally. Um, I've been I've been very lucky to to go to Italy, and my my order of pizza definitely did not have pineapple on it. Amazing. I feel like you built into that. Like at first, I thought it might be a moderate no. Then it was a definite no, a revolting, yeah. uh, you know, definitely not. No, fantastic. Yeah, good. Well, one more for my team. Georgie is more of a pineapple on pizza, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a no. So that's great. Uh, well, Dan, look, thank you. Thank you for um, being with us. Uh, is there somewhere people can follow you, LinkedIn or, or Instagram or, or, or Twitter? Any, anything, you know, people can follow your journey or, or reach out to you for a career advice? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, just uh, Dan Morris. Feel free to drop a message into my inbox. I'll always do my best to reply and always, always welcome to messages, whether it's um, for people after advice or just a general chat. I'm more than happy. Um, so LinkedIn's probably the best place to find me. Superb. Yeah. Well, this is the Dan Morris that works for Gordon Murray Automotive. That's working on for T33, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Although it sounds like maybe you're working on some secret projects, and we'll have to find out about that next time. So, so guys, if you've made it this far into the episode, on whatever platform you're listening or watching us, please do give us a thumbs up, give us a five-star rating, comment. Come and find us on Instagram or Twitter. Um, we're at Strip the Dip. Um, and, and, and tell us what you think about the show. Give us some feedback and share uh, the content. This is episode seven in the books. We can't wait to have you back for episode eight. We've got six further uh, six episodes that are already in the books. If you've not heard any of those, go back and listen to them. But until then, we'll see you next time. So, me, F1 Blag, and from Dan Morris, good night. See ya.